Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rennie Reed, and our guest today is Peter Wilkinson from Australia. Peter is a former Columban missionary priest who ministered in Australia and South Africa over 40 years ago. He's currently the president of Catholics for Renewal, a group of committed Australian Catholics advocating for reform of the Catholic Church. Peter, good to have you. Thank you, Rainey. I understand that the Catholic Church in Australia is planning to have a plenary council over a period of two sessions in 2020 and then again in 2021. Can you tell us what that really means? Well, the council is um, a meeting of all the churches of a nation. It's the highest form of communion between all those particular churches. And the purpose of a council is always to legislate. Legislate for the pastoral needs of the people of the nation. So what's so special about a plenary council? Well, what's special is that a plenary council makes laws. So first of all, it looks at the needs of the church in the nation uh, at that time. Uh, it reads the signs of the times, and then it tries to address those needs um, in various ways, but essentially uh, through making laws that are specific to the churches of the nation that obliges all the bishops of the nation to implement those laws. So bishops can't exempt themselves from the laws which are formulated by a plenary council. Uh, now, a council is very different from an Episcopal conference. An Episcopal conference is a meeting of bishops. A plenary council is a meeting of churches, particular churches. So in the case of Australia, uh, it is a meeting of the 28 territorial diocesan churches, the five epikies or eastern churches, and the two ordinariates. So in the United States, if you were to have a plenary council, you would have 197 churches meeting together. So that would include um, all the dioceses, the epikies, and the various ordinariates. So the churches meet, not just the bishops, but bishops, priests, and laity, and together they formulate the laws that they deem to be the most suitable for the church in that context at that time. Peter, why is it being held at this particular time in the life of the church in Australia? Uh, very clearly, it's because the church in Australia is in very, very serious difficulties. Um, it's facing a crisis that is huge and existential. Let is me your crisis any more greater than the rest of the world? It seems like it's a universal crisis. Uh, yes, it is. But in some countries, uh, the problems are not being recognized or they're being denied. Um, in, in this country, just to give you some example, um, our Catholic population is going down. Um, 
for the first time uh, since the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it would, would have been going down further if not for the large um, migration into the country of Catholics from the Philippines and Vietnam and India. So the Catholic population is going down. We have a mass attendance uh, rate of around 10% at the moment. So 90% of Catholics no longer attend mass. Um, very few uh, people uh, use the sacrament of reconciliation. Um, the number of baptisms are decreasing. Uh, the number of um, uh, Catholics marrying in Catholic churches uh, has gone down significantly. So there are a whole series of factors um, that not only suggest, but almost demand that a council take place. Has, has Australia had a plenary council in the past? Oh yes, we have. We've had um, effectively, we've had four uh, that are called plenary councils, but the term, the, the canonical term for count these type of council is called particular councils. Now, particular councils consist of two types, provincial councils and plenary councils. Provincial councils are councils of a single province. Uh, in Australia, we had one province only up until 1874. And, uh, during that period from 1844 to 1874, we had two provincial councils. Now, although they're, they're specifically provincial, there was only one province for the whole country. And so in effect, they were plenary because they uh, made laws for the whole of Australia. Uh, after those first two, we then had um, plenary councils and we've had four of them. We had one in 1885, one in 1895, one in 1905 and one in 1937. It now, has been a while, hasn't it? It is. Yes. If you look at me, uh, the last council was held the year I was born. Uh, so en enough said. Um, now, in the United States, you also have had particular councils. So up until uh, 1850, um, you had only one province, ecclesiastical province in the United States. So your first councils of Baltimore were provincial councils. After, um, after they were held, then, uh, and more provinces were set up in the United States from 1947, 1847 onwards, then you began to have plenary councils. So the first plenary council in the United States, uh, the first Baltimore plenary council was in 1852. But the, the second decree of that council stated explicitly that all the previous provincial councils were to be taken as their laws were, taken, were to be taken as applicable to the whole church in the United States. So it's been quite a while for us too. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's 185, 35 years for the United States. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's, only, it's only 82 years for Australia. Well, tell me, how does the Plenary Council get off the ground? How does it get organized? Okay. Um, 
the first thing is the the conference of bishops <clears throat> excuse me has first of all to agree that a council is necessary now <clears throat> uh, it shouldn't have been too hard for the bishops uh, to come to a conclusion that it was very necessary in australia because the church was drifting and it was it was basically on the rocks uh, however the bishops resisted for some time um, then eventually uh, they realized that um, it was necessary particularly after we'd had two um, inquiries big inquiries into child sexual abuse uh, in the catholic church in australia and so the bishops realized that they could not delay it any longer so they made the decision and um, after you make a decision that you want to hold a council you must get the approval of the holy see you can't have a plenary council without the holy see giving its approval uh, so they sought the approval of the Holy See and it was given. And so the preparations began at Pentecost last year with the, the formal announcement that the council would be held, uh, that it would be held in two sessions in 2020 and 2021. Um, and the bishops then appointed uh, three groups, uh, a bishop's commission, um, uh, as the, the, the main body that would um, decide on the preparations for the council. An advisory group um, made up mostly of lay people uh, with some clerics and a facilitation team with three people on that. The facilitation team were essentially the promoters of the council. So their job was to go around and to tell people what, what a council was, uh, the need for it and why it should be held and what it was going to do. Then the next step was um, to invite uh, all Australian Catholics and others to make a submission to the council. And uh, that those submissions were to be in by um, March of this year. Um, by that date, the council organisers had received 17,500 submissions from over 200,000 uh, Catholics and others uh, across Australia, um, which has then been compiled into a special report. And uh, the stage we are at now is called the discernment stage and the discernment stage um, uh, consists of uh, examining all the input from those submissions that came in from uh, around Australia and it's um, they've been grouped together into four into, sorry six uh, what are being called themes and the six themes are, I'm going to read this now, missionary and evangelizing, inclusive, participatory and synodal, prayerful and Eucharistic, humble, healing and merciful, a joyful, hope-filled and servant community, and open to conversion, renewal and reform. So they're the six themes that came out of something like uh, 120, 130 uh, specific topics. 
And more recently, uh, they asked people to put their names forward if they wanted to join a writing group uh, that would prepare the schema for the council um, on each of those themes. And those people have just uh, a couple of weeks ago been appointed and they will be preparing uh, the documentation on those themes uh, for discussion at the council. The way you describe it, Peter, it sounds like a plenary council has to be called by the bishops. But what yes. if there's a country that has bishops who are completely resistant to Francis like ours? Can such a thing be, be called by the laity and written to the Holy See requesting it? No. No, it must come from the bishops. So if you wanted to have a council, uh, a plenary council in the United States, the only way I think you could get it is somehow to persuade your bishops that such a council was not only opportune, but necessary. Now, opportune is the word that's in the canon law. So the bishops must believe it is opportune and useful. Uh, so uh, you have to get a groundswell uh, from the laity to convince the bishops that such a council is necessary. Well, you've described the overall themes of the council, but let's get down to brass tacks. Are the issues that are of concern to most reformers throughout the world going to be on your agenda? Are they going to talk about the role of women in the church or about celibacy being an option or about the divorce and remarried having a path to back to the Eucharist? Those kinds of issues, will they be on your agenda? Um, <clears throat> if you look at the report on the submissions, all of those issues are, have been raised by uh, the people of God. I'm sure. Yes, exactly. Now, um, whether they will be on the agenda, as yet we do not know. Um, so uh, we, we hope that they will be on the agenda. Now, there are, there, most of the issues that you raised there are actually beyond the competence of a plenary council. A plenary council can't make laws that are in opposition to the magisterium of the church. What we have been saying here in Australia is that we recognize that, but um, the council should hear the views of the people of God in Australia. And even though it is beyond the competence of the council to to change things um, pertaining to the magisterium, the view of the people of God must be reported to the Holy See so that they know what the people of God in Australia are thinking. Can you count on your bishops reporting those things that may go against their beliefs? Um, now, I can't give you a definitive answer to that, um, but, uh, the, the bishops are not the council. The council is an entity in itself. So the bishops are not the ones that are making the laws. It is the council that makes the laws. Now the council is now made up of 
not just bishops and priests. But since Vatican II, the council also must have amongst its members lay people. Now, um, the representation of the lay people in the council is, uh, is fraught. And if you apply the, the rule that's in the canon law book about who should attend, the best, the best uh, percentage of members that you could get that would be lay people is about 20%. So um, I spoke to the, the president of uh, uh, Australian Catholic Bishops Conference and said to him, if, if only 20% of the council members are lay people, uh, I think you can forget the council being uh, accepted uh, as a credible entity. So uh, my suggestion to uh, the president was go back and talk amongst yourselves, um, talk to the people who've been on the road talking to people around Australia, that's the facilitation team, and ask them what they think. And I think they will get the same answer, in which case you need to go to Rome and ask for a uh, dispensation from the rule uh, concerning the membership and you should ask them that a minimum of one-third of all the members of the council must be non-religious lay people now I understand that the bishops did uh, take that piece of advice they did ask uh, the Holy See for a dispensation and I understand that that was granted but we haven't been told the detail of, of, uh, of what they've been allowed. But we should know that before too long. As you try to raise the ratio of laity to clerics, who gets to vote? Uh, there are two. There, uh, let me just talk about the makeup of the council. A council is made up of um, uh, three groups. <clears throat> the first group is the people who must be invited. Now that's uh, bishops, uh, active bishops, uh, vicars general, uh, episcopal vicars, uh, rectors of seminaries, uh, presidents of Catholic universities, um, and uh, a certain number of uh, superiors of religious congregations who have um, a residency in Australia. The second group are people who may be called. And that group consists of uh, retired bishops uh, who reside in Australia and other faithful who may be clerics, religious, male and female, and laity, male and female. The third group are guests who can be anybody, um, including um, non-Christian uh, representatives of non-Christian religions or representatives of non-Christian churches. So they're the three groups. In terms of votes, there, there is uh, two votes that are available, a deliberative vote and a consultative vote. The only ones that have a deliberative vote are bishops. Of course. Bishops only. 
Those that have a consultative vote are all the others who are invited except the guests. So the guests don't have any vote. However, the guests may speak. They may be invited to speak and they may speak. So we have a situation where you have two voting groups, the decision makers, the bishops, and the, the consultative uh, people. Now, <clears throat> what we are suggesting for this council is that the organizers follow the example of Pope Francis with the Synod of Bishops. Now at the Synod of Bishops, there is only one deliberative vote, and that's the Pope. He's the only one that has a deliberative vote. All the bishops and the cardinals, they have a consultative vote and the guests don't have any vote. But what Francis has been doing is saying, you talk amongst yourselves, you draft what you, what you think are the right things to, to say, and then you vote on that. And if two thirds of all those with a consultative vote, vote in favor of a particular paragraph or particular whatever it may be, then I will consider that. So what we are saying to for this council is all those with a consultative vote should vote first on any draft legislation. So take a particular degree, decree, you have your vote. If two thirds of the, those with a consultative vote are in favour of that particular uh, decree, let it go forward to the bishops and unless they have a very, very serious reason not to agree with it, they should vote in favour of it. So what we're trying to say is every consultative vote must have a value, which should not be overridden unless the bishops with their deliberative vote have a very serious reason why it shouldn't, should not be passed. So with all this protocol, Peter, does it leave the lay faithful in Australia with some serious hope that something good is going to come from this? Or are they fearful that it's going to be business as usual? I think there is hope, but there is a very healthy amount of skepticism. So um, I think people are, are hoping and praying that this council will change things. Um, but uh, they're not convinced uh, that it will happen until it does happen. So the current synod that's going on right now, the Amazonian synod, is leaving people throughout the world with a lot of hope that even though they will be making decisions for their region of the world, their decisions will have a far-reaching out outreach on an impact on the Universal Church. Do you see this Australian Plenary Council as having an impact beyond Australia? Oh yes, we, we, we're well aware of that. There are churches uh, all around the world looking at uh, the Australian plenary uh, because this is, uh, this is only the second plenary council uh, held since Vatican II. There was a plenary council held in the Philippines in 1971. Um, um, but it didn't have much impact. So this is, this is the first very serious 
council um, being organized um, and um, it's being organized in a very synodal uh, and participatory way with uh, a great deal of influence from the lay from the lay uh, the lay people of the people of God and um, we know that um, churches throughout the world are watching and watching the developments of this plenary very carefully well when all is said and done and the council is concluded what happens to the legislation that is formulated there uh, that's a very uh, important question <clears throat> so at the end of the council um, a, a document is compiled called acta et decreta which essentially means the draft, the draft legislation and the minutes of the meeting. Now, they are sent to Rome. And Rome appoints um, some auditors who will go through those decrees with a tooth comb and ensure that, first of all, uh, the decrees are consistent with the magisterium of the church it is possible that some of the decrees may be rejected. It is more likely that um, quite a few of them will have amendments made um, or suggested. Um, some of them may be um, uh, modified to some extent. Eventually, uh, probably after about two years, um, the uh, the people who are reviewing them uh, will recommend to the Pope that the decrees, um, the revised decrees or amended decrees be approved, which he will do. And then uh, they come back to Australia and they are promulgated as the decrees of the council. They are not the decrees of the bishops. They are not the decrees of the Holy See. They are the decrees of the council um, of 2020-21 a date will be specified when they are to take effect and when they take effect they must be implemented by every bishop in every diocese and epoch and ordinary bishops cannot exempt themselves from those decrees and they apply across australia so these amendments or rejections that occur, does that come from the Curia in Rome? Yes, it does. But it would be it would be something that it, that would be negotiated probably with the with the bishops' conference. Um, um, but no, it's it's a normal procedure. And so then, does the legislation become church law? Yes. That is, effect, in effect, it is canon law for Australia until the next plenary council. But if some kind of law is approved in Australia, I see the hopes getting raised for other regions of the world. Oh, that's, that would be our hope, that that would be the case. So if we can make some breakthroughs here in Australia, then we imagine that, that they, they might be taken up by other churches in other places. And no bishop can exempt himself from this. He is no obligated. bishop can. Once those plenary uh, council decrees have been promulgated and implemented, 
no bishop can exempt himself. Peter, I know you're personally really involved in this council in, in every way. Where do you stand personally? Are you really deep down afraid that it's just going to be business as usual? Or do you carry some little hope, some ray of hope, that something valuable to the people of God will come out of this? Uh, I do uh, hold hope. Uh, it's not um, a hope that is um, not well-founded. I think if, if you are a believer uh, and you, you, you believe that the Holy Spirit uh, does act in the world and does act in the church, then I think you must have hope. But at the same time, um, I, I don't um, rely purely on hope. I think that, that all Catholics uh, in their church must work uh, as well as hope. So I think um, uh, it's not sufficient just to have hope. All of us uh, who believe that the church needs renewal have to work for that renewal. And that requires effort. Dr. Peter Wilkinson, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. And to our guests, uh, our listeners, if you have a question for Peter, feel free to leave a voice message. Or if you have a question about any of our shows, feel free to leave a voice message and we will get back to you. Peter, thank you so much. And our prayers are with you and all of the Catholic Australians for the hope of this Synod. Thank you very much, Rini. And uh, thank you to your listeners. <laughs>